Please take your seats and then take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. I'm going to begin the reading in verse 19. This is the chapter in John's Gospel. That's the record of the resurrection of Christ from the dead and his appearance to his disciples. Mary being the first one that saw the risen Christ, he gave that privilege to Mary Magdalene on that resurrection morn. John chapter 20, beginning reading in verse 19. Let's hear the Lord's word. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed them unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. The Lord will add his blessing from that reading of his word for his name's sake. Would you bow your head with me for a moment? Let's seek the Lord's face together in prayer. Our God, we come to the word of the Lord tonight. We now engage in the preaching and teaching, expounding and applying of thy truth. We don't want to be left to ourselves in this, and so we crave for that help of the Holy Spirit. We ask that thou wilt open the minds and the eyes and the ears and the hearts of those thou hast brought around the word this evening. Make it a word in season, Lord, a life-changing word a word of great encouragement, 
of rebuke, of strength, a word, Lord, that will deepen our walk with Thee, that will grow our faith in Christ. Indeed, Lord, that we will find ourselves wanting evermore to live in His presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's Luke in his gospel who tells us that Mary Magdalene returned to tell the disciples of Christ that she had seen the Lord. They thought she brought them nothing but, Luke says, idle tales. Idle tales. To tribute to this woman who was clearly a great follower and lover of the Lord Jesus Christ, to charge her with lying about such an event as seeing Jesus Christ arisen from the dead shows you just how determined, how fully convinced the disciples were that they were never going to see Jesus Christ again. The idea of a resurrected Christ hadn't even occurred to these disciples. Saving John and perhaps Peter, John writes that when he saw the empty tomb, he believed. Luke says that Peter left the tomb, quote, wandering in himself at that which was come to pass. For as yet, John writes, they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. It's an amazing fact. As yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Because of their refusal to believe Mary, and as well the testimony of those two men that walked with Christ on the Emmaus Road, the disciples are now sitting down, uh, probably the upper room, behind closed doors for fear of the Jews in deep dejection and despondency. There's nothing like unbelief that will bring a child of God into the depths of discouragement and depression. We are like Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress, who finds himself locked away in Doubting Castle, beaten continually by the giant despair when all along the key that will unlock the prison door is in our own pocket. The key being the promises of God himself. If It's as we believe the promises, as we believe the promises of God, that the doubts flee away and the door flies open and we find ourselves no longer in the dungeon of gloom and doom, but enjoying the bright sunshine of the Lord's face. That's how we are. It's when we see Christ in God's Word as the risen Christ, as the mighty conqueror over our greatest enemies that our hearts are just lifted up and we rejoice as we ought to in the Lord. But apart from that, we often find ourselves going through our days. Well, rejoicing would not be the word to describe it. That's exactly what happened that evening of the Lord's resurrection when he appeared for the first time to his disciples collectively. 
we read in verses 19 and 20 that Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Note that, brothers and sisters, it's when they beheld Christ that their darkness was turned to day, their sorrow to joy, and their fear was changed to boldness. Very courageous now. It all just changed in a heartbeat because they saw the risen Christ. There's no better cure for depression of mind and soul than to have a sight of the Lord in His Word in communion with Him. Nothing can better cure a downcast spirit. Is that not what David said? Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the health of His countenance, of His face. I'll see Him. I'll look upon the Lord, and this depression will leave me. It was the same with Mary Magdalene. There she is at the, at the tomb looking for the body of Christ, and her heart is broken. Broken. She came with the women to anoint the body of Christ. The two angels appear, and they tell the, the, the women there, listen, he's not here. Well, why seek ye the living among the dead? You're looking in the wrong place. He's risen. Now you go back and tell the disciples. She didn't do that. She stayed on, believing the body of Christ was still there. Not believing the testimony of two angels. Holding on to this fact that he's dead. And somebody's taken his body and put it away somewhere. And as long as she believed that, she kept on with her tears. Until... Until the Lord appears and asks the question, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? If you've taken the body of my Lord, tell me, and I'll get him. Years ago, I preached a message on that scene. One of my children wrote me recently and said, that was the best message I've ever heard on the resurrection. It reminded me of the scene that took place at that point in time. Mary actually turns away from the gardener, whom she thinks is the gardener, but is Christ. And she turns away as if to leave. And the Lord just said one word, Mary. As soon as she heard his voice, she turned, spun around, and said, Rabbani. Master. I wrote back and told my daughter that some old Puritan said that their hearts were so filled at that moment, all they could get out was one word. All Christ could say was Mary. All she could say was Rabbani. Mary, when she is there weeping, sorrowing at the tomb would typify so many of God's people. 
who really don't heed the Lord's word, who don't listen to the messengers he sends, and in so doing, they miss, they miss real blessings. So here we find Mary weeping her eyes away in the garden, her eyes full of tears, her heart so full of sorrow. So much so that she can't recognize Christ when he speaks to her. How patient the Lord is. How he makes it his special business to meet this one sad follower right at the point of her need. He will not let one who loves him so much miss out on the blessing that others would enjoy that day. No, Mary, I'm going to show myself to you. I'm alive. Now, this whole subject matter is actually repeated again for us in John 20. It seems to me that the Lord is is very desirous that we learn some valuable lessons if he keeps repeating these same kinds of scenes where there are doubters and mourners who are transformed into believers and rejoicers. In the event I want to speak about that issue tonight is in this place that the disciple Thomas plays in this post-resurrection appearance of Jesus Christ. It is from this event that I want to look at this meeting between Thomas and Jesus Christ on that evening of the first day of the week. Right? This was now a Sunday. He appeared. He arose from the dead on the Sunday. And now this is in the Sunday evening that he has this meeting. Three things I want you to see. First, Thomas is derelict in his duty. He is derelict in his duty. You'll recall that the first time the Lord appears to disciples collectively, as I said, is here in John chapter 20. It is the evening of the first day of the Lord's resurrection. And Thomas, one of the, one of the disciples, is conspicuously absent. He's the only one of the eleven. Judas has killed himself, has committed suicide. He's the only one of the eleven that is not present. So verse 24, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Where was Thomas? The Bible doesn't say. He may have been ill. Perhaps he was out of town that night. Perhaps he had some prior duty and obligations that demanded his attention. But I don't, I don't get the impression that this was why Thomas was absent. Rather, I think Thomas could have been there. Indeed, he should have been there, but was not there. He could have been there. He should have been there. But he wasn't. Did you notice how John describes Thomas where he speaks of his absence as one of the twelve? He wasn't like the two men on the Emmaus Road. You might call them the rank and file disciples. Thomas was one of the twelve. And as one of the twelve, there was far more expected from him 
than from the rest of the disciples, the rank and file. He has, was one of those who had been with the Lord during his earthly ministry the longest. He had the privilege of sitting at Christ's feet and hearing his word. He had been one of those who had gone out with the 70 and then with the 12 on missionary journeys to preach and to teach the word of God. He was greatly privileged. Those that have great privileges have great responsibilities. They are to set the example for the rest of Christ's disciples with regards to their, to their conduct and, and their conversation. So there seems to be more than a hint, I would say, that Thomas was derelict in his duty. The next question is why? Why wasn't Thomas there when he could have been and he should have been? What brought on this slackness in Thomas? Well, let me suggest several, several reasons. Thomas, in the first place, wasn't, he wasn't walking with the Lord anymore. No longer did Thomas hear the words of Christ. No longer was he on a daily basis talking with the Lord. No longer did his eyes look upon the Savior. He wasn't enjoying that nearness that he had enjoyed at one time. He's gone. That's, that's Thomas's. He's gone. And moreover, these circumstances brought Thomas... This whole death of Christ, the crucifixion, they brought Thomas uh, tremendous depths of discouragement and despair and, and misery in his own soul. We're, we're, we'll see a little later that Thomas, by nature, had a rather... He wasn't, he wasn't one you'd call an optimist by nature. He was, by bent of nature, a pessimist. He had a morbid outlook on things, but... When this daily fellowship with the Lord actually stopped, his natural pessimistic dark mood got even darker. And that's what happens to the Lord's people. And so Thomas goes off by himself, it appears. He's not there when the Lord appears the first time. He goes off by himself to hug his sorrow and his sadness. And in doing that, he exaggerates all of his trouble and his whole outlook is completely distorted. And in essence, is what's the point of meeting with the disciples? There's no use. It is all over. We, we should learn a couple of vital lessons from Thomas here as he was derelict in his duty. First obvious one is we ought never, never forsake the assembling of ourselves together. As Paul wrote to the Hebrews, unless you've got very good reason. 
very good reason. I say he could have and he should have been there, but he wasn't. Thomas missed out that Lord's Day evening because he wasn't there. He missed out and went for an ent- an, a, 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 another entire week in despondency because he was not where he should have been. Had he been there, he would have been with the other ten disciples, and it would have been said of Thomas, then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. But couldn't say that about Thomas because he missed it. He wasn't in his place where he should have been. He missed the Lord's first message, post-resurrection message to his disciples. You would think you'd really want to know what that is. This is the first time he's going to preach to them since he's risen from the dead. He missed that. It was a very challenging message, no doubt about that. It was an informing message. A message of comfort, peace be unto you. They were behind closed doors for fear that they were shaking in their boots. But Jesus steps in and says, peace be unto you. It was the message where he commissioned them to go. My Father has sent me, even so send I you. It was, the, it was in that message he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. But Thomas, he got none of that. Because he was derelict. He was absent. Thomas... When you think about Christ, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Thomas missed the Holy Spirit that night. And the Holy Spirit missed Thomas because the Holy Spirit gave the inspired writing in verse 24. Thomas was not with him. Oh, the Lord took note of it. He records it in his word. Thomas was not with them in this appearance. He wanted that detail to be known for eternity. Thomas was not there with the disciples, and he should have been. Here these men in this post-resurrection appearance received in a very unique way the infilling and the power of the Holy Ghost to do the work of God. It was a time I, I can't begin to imagine the, the blessing they felt, the fullness of joy and peace they enjoyed, but Thomas didn't. I have to say further that the reasons we are not where we ought to be in our relationship with Christ oftentimes and why we miss out as Thomas did is because we are we're much like Thomas. We stop walking with the Lord for a while. Let's not give it any other name. We just stop walking with the Lord. We don't 
pick up the Bible and hear Christ speak to us from His Word. We no longer talk to the Lord in prayer. We no longer behold the Lord with the eyes of faith. The fellowship is brought to a standstill. And it's just at that time that a believer becomes overwhelmed by circumstances. And he finds himself or she finds herself full of sorrow and misery. And instead of fellowshipping with Christ's people, like Thomas, the believer goes off to nurse his hurt and his misery. And he ends up missing the blessing from being with the disciples of Christ. You know, the Lord has just made us like that. He's told us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together because we need the fellowship one with the other. We need the corporate worship. We need it continually. The more we have it, the better off we are. Thomas, derelict as a disciple. Secondly, Thomas is determined in his disbelief. Determined in his disbelief. In, in verse 25, we read about the other disciples who were there in, in that Sunday evening, assuring him that they had seen the Lord. And, and Thomas's response to these ten men assuring them, listen, Jesus was here. Thomas Lone Thomas makes them out to be deluded at best and liars at worst. On the first occasion of the Lord's appearance, Thomas is the only one absent. On the second occasion, the Lord appeared, Thomas was the only one out of the eleven full of unbelief. Only Thomas. Our translation, verse 25, does not express the strength of Thomas's remark. Verse 25, it reads, The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord, but he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. The Greek has this idea. I will in no way believe. In no way will I believe what you're saying. That he's alive. Thomas didn't say, please note, if I have the evidence, I will believe. That way of putting it at least showed there was a willingness on his part to believe them. He said, rather, I will not believe unless I have the evidence. It's not, give me the evidence and I will believe. His is, I will not believe. I'm determined not to believe that he's risen. Unless there's evidence. 
You see, moreover, his dogmatic unbelief when he states the sole terms by which he's going to believe that Christ is risen from the dead. He states the terms, except I shall see again, verse 25, in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side so I can feel the print of the spear. Not going to believe. I will not. He not only demands evidence, that's one thing. He's actually dictating the evidence that he has to have before he will believe. This is some strong language. Great unbelief in the way he said it. I will not believe. It's not, I just can't believe this. But I will not. He pitted his will against his faith. I refuse. Unless my terms are met, I refuse to believe that he's alive. Though because of this unbelief, he, he robs himself of the joy and blessing that were being enjoyed by those other disciples. And I say tonight that there is nothing new under the sun. Is there not a little, if not a lot, of Thomas in us? When our hearts become filled with doubts and the ensuing despondency and in our own, our, our stubborn, willful... <laughs> Unbelief, we demand that God, what he must do, if we're going to believe him for this trouble or that trial. We set the terms. Lord, you're going to have to do this before I'm going to trust you. Before I'm going to believe. Our expectations with regards to all these various circumstances of life run high. Great expectations we have. Our hopes are running high. Then something we hadn't planned on, something unexpected happens, and we find our hearts, instead of being full of expectation, our hopes, our dreams have been shattered, and we're now full of doubts and despair. Others may tell us, may seek to assure us, just, just like they did with Thomas. Listen, everything's good. He's alive. We don't need to be afraid. Listen, God is going to make everything work together for good. But we are going to pit our will against our faith, just like Thomas, and we demand of God hard evidence. And we refuse to let go of our belief that this is all bad and going to work together for ill and not for good, unless God meets our demands and shows us that this is what we are to believe. Incontrovertible evidence we have to. 
At that point in time, folks, we are no longer walking by faith. We're walking by sight. Just like Thomas did 2,000 years ago. You know, the amazing thing in all of this is the Lord condescended to Thomas. If you and I had just come through the agony of the cross, death for these people, and they refused to believe us, I say we would have been a little more than hurt. We would have been angry. But not Christ. He shows to Thomas a special tenderness on this second occasion of his appearance. And he addresses his first words in that meeting to that unbelieving disciple. Verse 26, after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, he just appeared and stood in the midst like he did the first time, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. The Lord condescended to Thomas. Thomas demanded hard evidence. And he shows Thomas, at that point in time, I heard every word you said. You were adamant, willful disbelief. You want hard evidence? You want to feel the nail prints in my hands? And you want to thrust your hand to my side and feel the scar there? Here it is, Thomas, go ahead. Just don't be faithless, but believing. I tell you, folks, you, you, you want to stop and ponder that one, the kind of value that Christ places upon faith in him. He would go to those lengths to give Thomas just what he wanted so that his disciple would not be faithless, but believing. The Lord will do whatever it takes to nurture faith in you and me. Whatever it takes. He, he, knows, he knows that the just have to live by faith. They're not really going to live unless they live by faith. He knows they're not really going to enjoy him unless it's by faith. They're not going to be all that he has designed them to be and to enjoy an experience apart from faith. So he will go to great lengths to revive or restore or increase our faith. <laughs> One old divine said, if through our own folly, if through our own folly we are such babes that we cannot eat the meat which is fit for men, our Lord will not grow weary of giving us milk 
but he will even break the bread into morsels and take away the hard crusts that we may be able to feed thereon. How quaint that old preacher put how willing Christ was to see that we would be strengthened. He'll take away the hard crusts of the bread. Unbelief is our worst enemy. And the Lord is the one who loves us and he's not going to let us perish in unbelief. The Lord loves Mr. Little Faith as much as he loves Mr. Great Faith. He does not love you for your amount of faith that you have. He loves you because he loves you. Thomas, derelict as a disciple, determined in disbelief, is still in all of it one of the Lord's sheep. Nothing will change that. Thirdly and finally, I want you to notice Thomas is devoted to his deity. When the Lord does condescend to meet Thomas at the point of his need, Thomas's disbelief disappears and he falls at the Savior's feet. 28, Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. It was an expression of awe. It's obvious that it now hits Thomas like a ton of bricks that the one whom he regarded as the Messiah was also God, my Lord and my God. He saw the man at whose feet he had sat, the one who had washed his feet, was Almighty God. It's all he can say, my Lord and my God. He's overcome. He doesn't say, Thou art my Lord and my God. All he says is, My Lord and my God. For three years, Thomas had seen the Lord perform his miracles. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if you had been one of those who could see the Lord perform those miracles day in and day out? Why, and there's no record of him, why did he not cry out the same thing then? My Lord and my God. Thomas, you see, was a man who was slow to learn, like so many of us. And he was slow to believe. They always go together. When we're slow to learn, we're slow to believe. The lessons of faith and of who Christ really is come so slowly and so hard to us. And it's really the key all the while. It's the key to it all. It's knowing him. It's all Paul wanted to know, that I might know. I, everything else to me is done. I just want to know him more. Because this is the key. 
can we not and should we not follow Thomas tonight in our devotion to our deity, to our Lord, our God? If the fact that the Son of God suffered and bled and died to save you never astonishes you, it never melts your heart like wax. It never floods your eyes with tears. Then either you have never believed or you do not yet understand the meaning of Christ's atoning death. My Lord and my God. What brought that out? Well, Christ revealed he knew what Thomas was thinking. Christ did not say for him to stoop down and touch the nail prints in his feet. Why? Because that was not one of the evidences that Thomas asked for. It was exactly, exactly what he asked for that Jesus gave him. As a result, he was never the same again. I am pretty confident when I get to sit down with Thomas, you know, all these people you want to sit down and have conversations with, that he was never missing. He was never missing again in a meeting with those disciples. I'm sure like the rest of us, he always had battles with unbelief, but he was a different man after that. Forever changed because of that meeting of the risen Christ. Our joy, brothers and sisters, is seeing the Lord. That's going to make all the difference in the world, how we live tomorrow and the next day and throughout the week, and our joy and our peace of mind. God give us eyes to see Him, the faith to believe. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, we pray that our time tonight in looking at one of thy disciples of so long ago would come alive with power, freshness to us. We have often heard him called by the name Doubting Thomas. But Lord, as we've looked into thy word tonight, it was more than just a Doubting Thomas. This was Disbelieving Thomas. We readily confess that we have found ourselves walking in his shoes, responding the same way when what we had expected has been turned upside down. And yet we can also testify, Lord, that thou hast come to us in our determined disbelief 
and shown us, given us the evidences, even when we were full of unbelief. Continue, we pray, to bear long with us. We thank thee for thy patience with us. Oh, for grace to trust thee more. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. 